0: 10 If you're using the Bible provided by the church, that will be found on page uh, 946. Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you more importantly that Jesus Christ ended the law through his, his blood on the cross. We pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to minister to each, that you would open our eyes and our hearts. Father, I pray that if there are any that have struggled, that your truth would be solidified today, that we would be changed and continue to be conformed to the image of your Son. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. About four and a half years ago, my Christian life actually hit a wall. I had grown up in the Assemblies of God. I had been actually a part of the ministry of the Assembly of God for years. And four and a half years ago, God began to work through the wonderful mentoring and discipling by people, and I came to a crisis. I realized that not everything I had been taught was right. I'm not saying I was lost. I believe I was. But I was not aware of who God really is in certain aspects. My favorite scripture even then was Deuteronomy 32:39 where God says, "I am he. I am the God that curses, I am the God that blesses. I am the God that kills and I am the God that makes alive." But it never at once dawned on me that that sovereignty of God would actually affect election. And that was a struggle when the doctrines of grace were introduced to my family's life and we began to see the plan of God revealed through his sovereignty, it shook us. It made us mad. And finally, one day, I finally managed to meet with someone who would talk with me and help me, and that was Pastor Bert that helped direct and guide me and my family. But I said that because I imagined that through all the struggles and the turmoil we went through, I do not know if I could imagine what it was like for a Jew to hear about God's sovereignty and election and regarding Israel in his plan. I don't know what it would be like to have been raised a little Jewish boy, knowing from the beginning of God to Abraham to the Exodus, and then realize that we had missed the boat. To realize that not all Israel is Israel. To realize that me being a child of Abraham did not count nationalism, my, uh, my descendancy, that all the works that I was taught did not prevail, I had missed God. Even though I had fervently pursued God with everything that I thought was right, I missed him. And to have the added insult that the Jew, Gentiles who never looked for him found him. And to find out the reason they found him is because I rejected him. To realize that not all of the descendants of Abraham, not all of the children of the flesh are the promise. That the promise came through Isaac. I missed that as a Jewish child. I can't imagine that. And I can't imagine what it would have been like for Paul to bring this message, to write this letter to his people because in chapter 10, we're going to see now how Paul is begin, going to begin to tell them the progression of how their unbelief began. He's going to show them that, yes, God is sovereign. God is sovereign in his election. However, you are still responsible for rejecting him. And I want to use three ways to approach this text. I want to talk first about the concern of Paul for his people. The second, I want to talk about Israel's current condition. The current condition, where they are. And then the third, I'm going to label the conclusion of the matter. The conclusion of the matter. Look at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them as they might be saved. Paul, being a Jew, was concerned for the salvation. He was looking at the remnant, those that still would be saved. He was always quick as a Jew to identify himself as a Jew. He was never ashamed of that. He was a Jew. He did it as a witness and his preaching to the Gentiles first to show that salvation was not just for the Jews. And for the Jews to show them that salvation was not by heritage or not by nationalism. In chapter 9 verse 1 we see his concern as he writes of his anguish and his sorrow for them and a wish that he could be accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake like Moses in the Old Testament he was willing himself to be thrown out to be blotted out on the on the pretense hopefully that they would be saved. He loved his people. He loved Israel. And now in chapter 10 we read where now there has been increased a prayer for longing. He no longer wishes for the impossible. You see, Paul knew he could never be cut off in a curse for them. He was saved. And those that God saves, he keeps. He even identified with them as being kinsmen of the flesh. I'm, I'm a kinsman of the flesh, but I'm not still a kinsman to you because I'm a part of the remnant. I've been born again of the Spirit. But now in chapter 10, he's praying for the real and possible, the salvation from God's eternal wrath through Jesus Christ Because as a Jew who was part of that saved remnant, he knew that saving transformation power through God's grace, having gone from Paul, the persecutor of the church, to the one now who says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. Listen, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. Out of this transformation, Paul's heart, his passion was preaching the gospel to his brethren that God would extend his mercy to Israel as well as he did to the Gentiles. Paul then has to go to the part that I'm sure was not pleasing and that's describing why they are where they were. I call this kind of a process. There's kind of a, a progression where one starts the works to total unbelief. Look at verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. But verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul knew, and he started this with a compliment to them. He knew they had a zeal for God. He knew they loved God. He knew that they pursued God. They had a zeal and a deep passion for that God. As a matter of fact, Paul was very familiar with this zeal. As in his earlier, ze- in his earlier years as Saul the Pharisee, he persecuted the church in this zeal. He was going after those that he thought were heretics, those that were blaspheming God by worshiping Christ. He oppressed Jesus and persecuted the church. Josephus wrote himself that the Jews had zeal. They knew the law better than their own name. And the sacred rules were punctually obeyed and the great feasts were law. And we also know that since their return from the Babylonian captivity, the Jews had pretty well guarded against falling into the sin of idolatry, the one thing they were guarding against. They were zealous and determined to serve at the purposes of God, yet by that serving, they legalistically performed outward acts of the law and demands without the spiritual understanding and knowledge that was needed, which blinded them to the truth of God's gift of righteousness, his gift of mercy. They miss God as he really is, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. A God who said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And as a result, they failed to recognize his righteousness. For we know in verse 3, Paul says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The sad thing is the Jew one thing the Jews should have understood is the righteousness of God. From the beginning, they were given the oracles. He gave them the law. He gave them the ceremonial laws of how to live. He gave them the sacrifices. In fact, that was Paul's sorrowful lament in chapter four, or chapter nine, verse four. He said, "They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption." To them belong the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Everything was given to them and they missed it. That was Paul's sorrow. It should have been them. If you look at it in the flesh, it should have been them. Yet because of their blindness because of their ignorance and the fact that they so valued their identity, their ancestry and traditions that they felt they were really not in need of salvation. They were okay. I'm fine. I don't need this Messiah. What I need is I need a deliverer to free me from the Roman rule and this oppression that I have, but I'm fine. I don't need the Messiah. And that was despite the teaching of the scripture of the Old Testament and they chose to live their lives in their established own standards of holiness and righteousness. Paul himself, once a Pharisee, gives us insight to this self-righteousness. In Galatians 1.14, he said, He attested to the persecution of the church for the tradition of my fathers. You see, in their desire to serve God, in their desire to pursue God, they had really gotten away from the commandments. They had put more emphasis on the oral law, the traditions, the things that were set in place to keep them from breaking the laws. And as time went on, they began to have more impact than what God's written law, what God had decreed in the first. Paul himself, I said, once the Pharisee gives us insight, the Pharisees themselves thought that since they were descended from Abraham, they were guaranteed approval by God. Yet they formalized daily observances of the law as a rule of life. As a rule of life. God no longer was the rule of life. It was the rules, the establishment that was the rules of life. They had lost the focus, the centrality of who God was. By doing this, by doing that, whoever, by taking the laws and making them more important than who God is, who Christ is, we begin to pervert God's grace. God is the only one who can give us the grace. God is the only one who can draw us. God is the only one who can save us. Yet when you formalize and you make laws and you put more emphasis on that law, then it's what you do that determines who you are, not who God says, what God says, what God has decreed. They put emphasis on minor details by the law, they neglected what mattered the most. Pastor Burt preached a few weeks ago about tithing and how Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He said, These you ought to have done. You forgot what's important because the things you establish become more important. The self-righteousness also uh, caused misguided interpretations of the law, denying its true spirit. You see, that's what Israel missed. They missed the spirit of who God was. They got the things down. They had the right observances. But they missed that God was a God who said, what, worship in spirit and in truth. We are incapable to worship God in ourselves that matters. It's only the Holy Spirit in us, Christ in us, that allows us to worship God and the fullness of what he intends. As a matter of fact, if you're not careful, the self-righteousness that they had broke the commandments of God in order to keep traditions. They broke the commandments of God. And again, another example had to do with not taking care of your father and mother because you said that what you had, you gave to God. You avoided the commandment. You avoided doing what you were supposed to do. And I think the most important that I would put on here is they substituted human tradition for God's authoritative law, binding consciences where God made them free. I know in John 8, 31, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's by abiding in his word. It's by knowing who he is. It's not allowing the traditions to affect us, to take us away from who God says he is, who Christ says he is. No longer do we meet the demands of the law, but rather we meet the outpouring of God's grace. When we fellowship with one another, when we encourage one another, that's God in us. That's extending that grace. I'm sure you know as well as I do that if you ever establish a law, a tradition, that you usually will be the first one to break it within 10 minutes after you said it. You don't believe it? Make some chocolate chip cookies, put it on the table and say, nobody eat these cookies for 10 minutes. Put a glass of milk, clear the room and you're by yourself. Because we cannot keep the law, even the own laws that we make. Speed limit signs. How many always keep the speed limit signs? You see, those are man-made laws to protect us. We can't keep those. But yet God, through His Holy Spirit in us, enables us out of love and grace to obey the things that He has set before us. Because in the flesh, we want to please the flesh. But in the Spirit, we want to please our Lord. We want to please our Savior. I'm going to go first part to the conclusion because I have a lot of conclusion to the matter. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Chad read this morning to remind us that all who rely on the works of the law are cursed. They never can be justified before God by the law. That is only through faith in Christ's atoning work on the cross that we are justified before God. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a Jew hearing that. But I want to kind of transfer from being a Jew right now to who we are today. Because the warnings that Paul gave then weren't just warning for the Jews, they are for us today. The Apostle Paul also gave us a warning. Unless we begin to take confidence in things rather than Christ. That for some, for a time, could shake their faith. And for others who are not believers, to help you maintain your confidence and security that you are saved. In Colossians 2 6 through 8, we are told to guard ourselves to prevent being taken captive by philosophies and empty deceits according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And today, for all of us, it's a caution we truly should heed. First of all, for those who may not be a believer, there are many different types of human knowledge that are going to influence you. And for those who are believers that have not been brought up in a church like this, where you're not taught properly and um, the word is not brought forth in the correct manner and context, could even influence you a little bit. Some of those knowledges I just put two down here at once. That is the postmodernism that we face today. Uh, those are those who do not attempt to refine their thoughts about what is right or what is wrong. Everything is basically an app. There is no such thing as an absolute truth. No one has the authority to define truth or impose upon others his ideas of moral right and wrong. And for us as human beings, that sounds great. No one likes to be told what is right, what is wrong, especially if you're doing the wrong. None of us do. We are rebellious. We're unbelievers. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all measure, even for believers that we have to guard our hearts. But if you're not a believer, you're on your own. You'll be following the those who, uh, as Jesus said, you're not of your father, you're of your father the devil. And I don't say that harsh to be critical. I'm just saying the truth. You'll be there to please yourself. You'll create a God in your own image, one that will justify everything that you want to do. I've heard it. I've heard you probably have. God is love. My God would never send anybody to hell. That's not true. God is love, but God is just but these traditions, these thought processes with no absolute where you establish what is right for you, that your perception is your reality is wrong. There is an absolute truth, and that's in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There's existentialism, that you create who you are from the inside. Whatever you think you want to be, you can determine, you can go where you want to go because the power to do it is inside of you. Nobody can hurt you because who you are on the inside is more important than who you are on the outside. As a Christian, that is true. Because as a Christian, it is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I now live according to him who died and gave himself for me. Anything that I live in myself for me as an unbeliever... Is only going to take you further from the truth of who God is, further from the mercy, further from the grace. We have a saying that knowledge is power, and that's not true either. Knowledge is influence. And for those that do not know the absolute truth of who God is, all that will do is take you in different directions. You'll be like the one that built his house on the sand. And when the wind and the waves came, it washed it away. But the true knowledge of God, the power of God that saves you, doesn't influence you, it changes you. It changes your heart. You go from being uh, someone that's lost to a new creation. If anyone is a new creation, if anyone is born again, he's a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. What you did happened, but who you are now in Christ is what is relevant. But if your perception is your reality, then you will go back and forth. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 8 26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. And the wisdom that guides us and directs us only can come through the Holy Spirit. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul writes, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool. For the wisdom of the world is full with folly. Proverbs tell us what the beginning beginning of knowledge is wisdom. And who? It's God. It's God. Like those Paul who, who Paul was addressing many of today who have a zeal for God and are pursuing to please Him with external obedience, their works going to church, teaching, paying tithes, don't even miss a day of Sunday school, and have pursued God like Israel through works and not faith. My friend, coming to church doesn't save you. It doesn't. Like the late Keith Green said, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Coming here, sitting here, doesn't make you a Christian. But it will do this as an unbeliever. You will be comfortable because you will receive some of the fallout, some of the blessings that are coming on the others. And if you're not careful, it will build up, unless God awakens you, it will build up a confidence that you are okay. Paul tells us daily to examine ourselves in the faith. Examine ourselves in the faith. Are we in the faith? This works mentality also binds you up emotionally. You can't have or you don't have the liberty of freedom in Christ where you know God's grace. You're bound up with works and when you can't achieve, you go into depression. You get frustrated. It's like nothing ever matters because you can't measure up. When that happens, you need to evaluate yourself. Am I going by works now or am I going by faith? Am I going in the grace of God? Do you understand that if you were a believer, you wouldn't have to do anything and God would love you just the same way? He loves you if you're His. And for those that do a lot, praise God that He's called us or called you to do a lot, but at the end of the day, you're still an unprofitable servant because you were just obedient to the things of God. God is the one who evaluates, not us. If you get up in the morning and you love your wife the way God wants you to love your wife, you've accomplished a lot. But, like Paul, too, for the unbeliever especially, we must continue to pray and pursue the lost because each and every one of us here that are born again are a remnant of that Gentile group. We should be praying for our lost. We should be praying for our lost. Statistics show that 150,000 people die every 24 hours. Two people a second. Two people a second will step in eternity. We, like Paul, having been saved as part of that remnant, should have that passion, have that desire for our lost to be saved. We don't know who God's elect are. We don't. But we're responsible to pray for them. We're responsible to have a concern for them. We must long to see them saved, not just our family members, but the lost. 150,000 every 24 hours. Your family, my family, your friends, my friends. That's why it's so important as a church when we reach out whether it's in having a meal whether it's over a cup of coffee whether it's talking on the street we must ensure that we get the gospel to them we must ensure that also we live the gospel to them that's a lot of people to die every day if we've been transformed i pray and i'm i'm no different I just pray that every day the Lord would give in my heart that burden, that passion that he gave Paul to reach out for the lost. Not just in the confines of the group of the church, but as an extension from the church in the workplace, on the highways and the byways. I've shared this and I want to share it again. Francis Schaefer wrote a book, I read one of the first ones, called Addicted to Mediocrity. And basically, in that, in essence, he said Christians had abdicated their responsibilities. Rather than dealing with the world, they created their own world. Kind of became a monastery unto ourselves where we have our own bookstores, our own entertainment, places we go, and worse than that, we just hang out with Christians. We abdicated. So now we look at it as the secular world versus the Christian world. That's funny because when I read in Genesis, God created one world. He created one world. He told his children to control the world, to take charge. But in some circles, we've let it go. Now, we know according to God's sovereignty that the world's got to go a certain way so we can have the wonderful return of Christ. But in the meantime, we're still responsible. As we are responsible for rejecting Christ, we're also responsible for sharing the good news of Christ, for being that example of Christ to others. We must remember that we were no different. I like... um, Paul especially reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 after he gets done, uh, 1 after he gets done talking about who will not inherit the kingdom of God. In order for us to not get prideful, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were renewed. That was us. Someone told you about the gospel. Somebody had mentored and discipleship, discipled you in the gospel. We are to do the same. There is absolute truth. There is. The Bible teaches absolute truth. There's two kinds of people in the world. The righteous, those made righteous, and the wicked. And the wicked, the lost, have for themselves stored up the wrath of God and the eternal fire, lake of fire. For the righteous... Our debt has been paid. But out of that debt being paid, we should have the love to tell the lost that there is an absolute truth. That Jesus Christ came to die for their sins. That if they turn from their sins, if they repent, if they put their trust in Jesus Christ, in Him alone, that He will forgive their sins. He will wash away their iniquities. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you as a body of believers. We can see you who, for who you really are. Just, kind, merciful, forgiving sins, forgiving iniquities. Your mercy and grace are without end. But Father, I pray that you would remind us that, that when we see the lost, we see those that we don't know, that we will share that with the lost. Lord, we do want the lost to be saved. We look forward to the time when you come again that we can worship and praise you face to face. But in the meantime, let us honor you. Let us glorify you by giving you glory by lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. If your word says, if he's lifted up, you will draw all men unto you. We just thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.